If you'll take a Bible and turn to the, again, as we did last week, to the Psalms, but this time to Psalm 37. A few years ago, um, Barbara took some old photographs that I had and had them enlarged and framed. And I was looking at one this week, which was a picture of, of me at about four years old with my grandfather, J.D. Miller, in front of his uh, gas station in Gadsden, Alabama. He would let me pump the gas into the cars. He'd let me get one of those rig, red rags that they had around gas stations, mechanics always had. And I, the minute I'd get there, I'd put that in my back pocket. That's part of the uniform. That's the most basic part. I can still remember him telling me how to pump the gas that many years ago. Without a doubt, some of the most influential people in the lives of children are grandparents. And I'm not just saying that because we kept three of ours for about three days this week and lived to tell about it. But little grandchildren typically and naturally have a, uh, not only a love, but an infatuation with, with grandparents. For those of us that were blessed to have grandparents or to, to know them. It's just sort of built in from the Lord. Well, Psalm 37 are the words of an older man, an older King David, the grandfather, if you will. We typically think of David, and if you read Psalm 23 and Psalm 100, we think of a young man. We think of the young man who fought Goliath and then became the king later. But these words are from David, but as an old believer, uh, a man who's been seasoned by life and by his walk with the Lord. He has had his ups, he has had his downs. And so it turns somewhat more philosophical. There's not time this morning to deal with all 40 verses. But you may recognize some of the most familiar verses from the Psalms that people know, whether they know the reference or not, come from this psalm. Such as in verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Verse 5, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Verse 16, Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. Verse 25, says, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. So let me read the first 11 verses as this psalm deals with an age-old question, which is, why do the wicked appear to prosper when the godly suffer? Hear God's word. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, 
over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So ends the reading of God's word. Who does God love? I mean, when you look around and try to determine, how do you know God loves you? Well, because you have good health, right? Or because you have all that you need financially, you have plenty of money, maybe you have a great family, you have a strong marriage, always succeed. Those are the people God loves, isn't it? Well, we tend to think that way. And definitely the world tends to think that way. I think the church does too. There's a main theme here, and that is that God does not want you to fret because of wrongdoers. To fret means don't get worked up, don't get heated. We're not to get upset when we see what would appear to be the wicked prospering, just in case we miss the point, the, the idea is repeated in verse 1, verse 7, verse 8, so forth. The evildoers it describes here are just people who live as though there is no God. God is left out of the equation. Sometimes they are wicked toward the righteous. They afflict the righteous. And God tells us, don't get worked up about it. Don't fret over their existence, over their numbers, over their influence, over their success, over their prosperity. We tend to fret over it when we look and observe and compare ourselves with others and arrive at the conclusion it doesn't pay to serve God. Here is uh, your neighbor. And from all indication, he or she does not acknowledge God in any way that you know of. They certainly have nothing to do with a church or, or ministry in any way. They seem to be healthy all the time and you get sick and can't ever get well. Your boss is adjusting his tax returns and never seems to get caught and only seems to prosper. Your fellow worker that you know doesn't try as hard as you do. When recognition is given, they receive it. They get the raise. You get nothing. Here's a student who seeks to live a godly life, tries to honor God with their academics. Here's another student who cheats, and it's well known, at least among the other students, that they cheat consistently. And sure, lo and behold, they get the good grades, and the hardworking believer gets lower grades. And we look at such and we conclude, Lord, who switched the price tags? Are you not clear on what your promises said and what is important? Do you not see what's happening? Well, he says, don't fret, in verse 1, because of evildoers. Why? It tells us in verse 2, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Like grass, it seems luxuriant in the morning, green and healthy in the early part of the day, and then after the mower comes through, it's dried up by the afternoon. Or they're like the green plants when they're cut down. 
So what God says is you cannot evaluate what happens here in this life, by this life, you have to look toward the end. We have to look toward the future in evaluating the way things appear now. So what are we to do? Well, in the following verses, David gives us at least four main injunctions to help us keep a proper perspective in life. He gives us these four key ideas to keep us from fretting because of the prosperity of evildoers. First, he tells us in verse 3 to trust in the Lord. God wants you to trust in him. Trust, belief, faith, those words are used almost as synonyms often in the Bible. It does not talk when it mentions faith. It's not merely passive. It's not a passive idea that doesn't affect other things. It's active. And our faith is not merely related to trusting God. It also results in how we treat other people. So the person who is trusting God, really confident in God, will experience life and power of God in your life that will express itself in how you treat other people. Faith has three elements. There's content, and then there's acknowledgement or consent to that content, and then the last level is trust. The Bible uses marriage as the analogy to our faith in Christ, so that's a great analogy we can understand. You can know about a person, then you can decide to marry that person. You both mutually agree, but until you take the marriage vows, there's not that real step of faith. But there's the content part, the knowledge of that person, and there's the consent to it, and then finally a commitment to it. God frequently asks for our trust. Remember when Jesus had been resurrected from the dead, and Thomas, one of the disciples, uh, was lacking faith in that. And then he said, Jesus said to him after the resurrection, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So if it's clear that God wants you to trust him and he commands you to trust him, why do we still doubt? Why don't we do it? Why is it so difficult in so many cases? Well, sometimes it's an issue of the intellect of what we believe, the content. We, our understanding may be amiss. Our understanding of God may not be accurate. In other words, we may have a theological issue We tend to make him small and bring him down to our level. One of the verses we read in our affirmation we affirmed in Romans 8 was that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We can accept that biblical principle and say, oh, I believe that. I don't doubt that for a moment. But the problem comes not in the concept, it's in the details. It's when... Things don't go tomorrow the way you hoped. So our perspectives are so small. And I think to compensate for that, we try to bring God down to our level so he won't seem so lofty and uncontrollable. Now, as a... When our children were young, I read through all seven volumes of the Chronicles of Narnia with them before they'd go to sleep. I did it with our son and then later with our daughter's because they were age differences. and there's a, There is a paragraph, really two paragraphs, in the 
The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the, the first volume of the Chronicles, that's probably quoted more than any other section of all seven volumes. And it has to do with the conversation early on. Well, I'll tell you. Two of the children are looking for their brother. And their brother has fallen under the spell of the white witch. And they hide in the home of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And the beavers speak in hushed tones, real quiet. And they speak about Aslan. Aslan is the long-gone lion king of Narnia. But he has been spotted and is, and is again on the move. Of course, if, you, if you've read those, you know that the lion is symbolic of Christ. And C.S. Lewis writes in the book, Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall rather feel nervous about meeting a lion. Well, that you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Now, even in a way that children could understand what C.S. Lewis was saying there, is that here, here's this big God, omnipotent, omniscient, and we try to bring him down to our level in order to understand the specific details of what happens to us. But we really can't do that. We have to trust in his goodness. Is he safe? No. In other words, can we control him? Of course not, but he's good. So trust in him, rest in him. If you can trust God to work out the final details, then you need not worry, need to worry about them yourself. The second injunction in verses 4 and following is God wants you to delight in him. Last week we looked at Psalm 1, if you were here. And we looked at the entire psalm, that's only about six verses. But we saw the verse, his delight, speaking of the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. God has created you and me with this wonderful capacity to experience delight, to find joy in experiences or things, and it's, it's a great gift from him. I remember the first time I became infatuated with it. I was in the fifth grade, and this sermon's not about my childhood. I just realized that's the second time I referred to it. I'll have to be careful. I'll have to do some editing on my feet as we go along. We had a main street in my hometown with all the stores were on it. Broad Street, that kind of tells you that. Broad Street, and I was walking down, and in front of Fred Sinkton's Sporting Goods, I looked in, and it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen to that point in my life. It was about this long. It had precision wheels on it, and the, the, it was polished, varnished, hardwood with red paint with those special words at the end, hang 10. <laughs> it's the most beautiful skateboard I'd ever seen. And I had to have it. 
I would dream about this. I would walk by there. Now, it costs $10, which might as well have been $1,000 today to a child who got maybe a quarter a week in an allowance. So I began to save and scrounge and look under the sofa and find change and do everything I could for months until the day went my mother took me down there and I bought that skateboard. I thought about it. I, I would go by and look at it long before I had the money and dream about how life would be so different once I had it. That is to delight. It brings pleasure. To delight in the Lord is to find happiness in his being, in his perfections, in his friendship, in his love. Do you delight in God? James Montgomery Boyce, who who died of cancer a number of years ago, he pastored 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for many years. He wrote about the concept of delighting in God. He said this, This is ironic. Before people are Christians, they resist a relationship with God because they do not think God is desirable. They suppose him to be moralistic and harsh, establishing rules intended only to keep people from fulfilling themselves or having fun. But the truth is different. For the God we come to know in salvation is entirely delightful. He is holy. He is exalted and sovereign. The awesome God that the Bible shows him to be. He cannot be taken lightly, but he's also a source of delight. For he is the perfection of grace, compassion, mercy, kindness, patience, and love. He is, in other words, like Jesus Christ. And the better we know him, the more we will delight in him. The reason many apparent Christians do not delight in God is that they do not know him very well. And the reason they do not know him well is they do not spend time with him. If you wait and say, when I begin to delight in God, then I'll spend time with him. It's the other way around. It's you spend time with God and that fire of delight will grow. We're about a week away from the anniversary of when my close friend Dave Nicholas died a year ago. Dave had spoken here at our church. He had preached our Wednesday luncheon. And when he did a little seminar with some of us, he, he said, God wants you to, to know him. As you get to know him, you will learn to love him. As you love him, you will learn to trust him. And as you trust him, you will learn to obey him. If you do not obey him, it is because you do not trust him. And if you do not trust him, it is because you do not love him. And if you do not love him, it is because you do not know him. You delight in something. You do delight in something or someone. And we look for that something or someone in which we delight to help give us fulfillment in life. And God wants you to delight in him. Now, I want to read you one more quote, and then I promise. Uh, No more quotations, okay? So just listen to this. John Piper, a few years ago, wrote a book called The Dangerous Duty of Delight. See how what a packed statement that is? That to, it would seem the opposite, that delighting and duty could never go together. But we have a duty before God to delight in him. He said, The world tries to satisfy the internal longing with scenic vacations, accomplishments of creativity, stunning cinematic productions, sexual exploits, 
sports extravaganzas, hallucinogenic drugs, ascetic rigors, managerial excellence, but the longing in the heart remains. What does this mean? And he said, C.S. Lewis answered, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The fact that we cannot find ultimate contentment in this life should tell us that God hasn't wired us to find ultimate contentment in this life, but in another. Look at the promise of verse 4 that comes with this. It's often misunderstood. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, I say it's often misunderstood that we may read that and say, oh, great, I'll delight myself in God, and then whatever I want, he's promised to give me. That really isn't what it means. It does mean that if God is your chief delight, then he will give you new desires. He will give you desires from your heart that you did not have before. And those desires will originate with him as you find your pleasure in him, he will give you the desires themselves. You will begin desire to desire to do things which you did not desire before. The more we delight in him, the more he does this. Look at verses 5 and 6. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. God wants you, third, not only to delight in him, not only to trust in him, but to commit your way to him. We chose the first Peter passage to read during the service because the concept in that passage is the same as this. The literal meaning of commit your way to the Lord is the same thing that Peter says, casting your anxiety upon the Lord. Both phrases mean to take a burden and to roll it over onto another. So here you have this large backpack weighing you down, concerns, anxieties, fears, whatever it may be, and you roll that onto another and they take it. Well, here God says, commit your way or roll your burdens upon me. In fact, he uses the word way, commit your way. That means all, all of life. Whatever is weighing you down, whatever is a burden to you, it may be emotional, it may be broken relationships, it may be an unknown future, whatever it may be, situations beyond your control, and there's a temptation, and you hear it often today, well, if there is a God, he certainly isn't concerned about the details of my life. With all that's going on on the planet, what's close to six-plus billion people, you think God's concerned about this little problem in my life? Well, the Bible says he is, and he wants you to trust him with those. Look at the fantastic promise that comes with it. He will act, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Whose righteousness? Your goodness? Does this mean if you do these things, God will show the world how good you are? Just like last week, if you were here, the only righteousness we have is from Christ. This is where Christ is in this psalm. He is our righteousness. That when we trust in him, he pays for our sin. He takes our sin and the penalty of our sin. We receive his righteousness. Martin, one more quotation. <laughs> Martin Luther. 
commenting on this, said, When we come to Christ, we are married to him by faith. Like a bride, we give him all we have, namely all our sin. And he gives us all he has, namely all his righteousness. Are you with me? Are y'all, it's kind of, it's 948. Y'all ought to be awake by now. I don't know, unless you had decaf this morning. If you hear these words, delighting in God, if that sounds like a foreign concept that you cannot personally relate to, then there's a strong likelihood this is your issue. That it's not about your righteousness, it's about Christ's righteousness. And the more we understand what Christ did for us, the more we can delight in God. A friend of mine, I spent two and a half hours with him Friday. He talked about in the early years, we were both converted through the same ministry. We're from the same hometown. And he said, you know, really the way we approached it was salvation was all Christ's work. But once we were saved, we were on our own with the Holy Spirit to make it happen as far as growing in him. I couldn't disagree with him. I think that was right. And rather than realizing I can delight in God, not because whether I had my devotional time this morning or how I treated my wife or, or whether I lived up to whatever standard was there for the day, whether you, whether you did what you had set a resolution to do spiritually, but I can delight in him because of the righteousness of Christ. I cannot add to his righteousness. I don't bring my own to mix it in with his or to add to it. So if you are listening to this sermon and saying, yeah, I don't disagree with this delighting stuff. I mean, it's right there in the Bible. I just can't relate to it. If possibly that is your perspective, I would urge you to think about the righteousness of Christ and to start there. Fourth and lastly, it's in verses 7 and following. God wants you to be still and to wait for him. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. To be still means to be silent. It suggests the stillness of waiting. Do you know that Federal Express once had in one of their advertisements, waiting is frustrating, demoralizing, agonizing, aggravating, annoying, time-consuming, and incredibly expensive. Amen for FedEx. And I think we find that true is spiritually as well. Waiting on God, waiting on Him to answer a prayer, or waiting for Him to bring something about can be frustrating, demoralizing, agonizing, aggravating, and so forth. We don't like to wait. No one likes to wait. And probably the business world and marketing has more keen, common grace insights about this than we talk about in church. I was reading an article the other day on the psychology of the waiting line. <laughs> when you're standing in line, what kind, what kind of common experiences do most people have? Well, it said anxiety makes waits seem longer. If you're worried about what's at the end of that line, the wait will seem a lot longer than it really is. Uncertain waits are longer than known finite waits. In other words, if you go to the doctor's office, if you're told by someone that the doctor will be delayed by 20 minutes, that's much easier, easier to handle than an indefinite wait where you don't know what's going on. Unexplained waits are longer than explained waits. 
I like this one. The more valuable the service, the longer the customer will wait. Example. Airline passengers will wait patiently for the plane to arrive at the gate. But once the plane is there, they immediately jump up and want to get out as fast as possible because the sense is the service is over. There's no value to this anymore. I want out. I'm finished with this. Another observation was that solo waits feel longer than group waits. There's comfort in knowing someone else is feeling the same way that you are. Now, there's spiritual parallels to every one of those. You can't have a more valuable thing we're waiting on. And we're not waiting alone. That's part of the community of the church and the local body. I was with uh, about 14 pastors last week for two and a half days. Jim Baird, Frank Barker, Randy Pope, Charles McGowan, and, and many uh, and several others. And we met in Orlando, and we just talked about issues for, for two days around a conference table. And some of the things that came out of that that people are going through and people in their congregations. While we were sitting there, one of the fellows, John Montgomery, he used to pastor Westminster Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, and now he, he planted a church in Orlando. John is typically with us, but he was down in Miami because his sister's husband, in a fit of depression, had jumped off an 11-story building, and they were burying him that day. He was doing the funeral. Um, things that other pastors and, and pastors' children uh, are going through that almost are beyond imagination. Some of the most highly held, reputable pastors in our denomination that you would know and love uh, are being attacked through Facebook and things like that where people have told them, I'm going to take you down and here's how I'm going to do it and they will start rumors, and it will go out to the hundreds and then the thousands in a matter literally of hours or days. Um, to know that when we wait on God, we're not alone in those situations, it makes a huge difference. Noah, here he was endured. His neighbor's insults, he waited 120 years before God brought the rain. Job lost his family, his health, his wealth, the best-known example of suffering in the Bible, but through his ch suffering, he chose to wait on the Lord. Abraham, at age 75, God called him to leave a prosperous land, and he moved around for over 100 years waiting on God to fulfill a promise. Joseph was sold by his brothers. He endured 14 years in a dark Egyptian prison cell for a crime he did not commit, and he waited on God, and he trusted in his sovereignty. Here was Moses, the well-educated son of Pharaoh's daughter. At age 40, he kills an Egyptian. He flees into the desert. And for the next 40 years, 40 years, he spends that in the desert waiting on God. Paul sets out to destroy Christianity by persecuting Christians. He's converted, and he spends three years alone getting to know his Savior. I believe waiting on God from talking with people seems to be the rule rather than the exception. Some of you are waiting on God to show you direction about a job or marriage partner or the conversion of parents or the conversion of a wayward child or the conversion of a spouse. 
waiting for relief from some sort of physical or emotional pain, then we have to think about the end. Philippians says our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus. So in that sense, our whole Christian life is waiting. We're in the waiting room, waiting on heaven. Our lives are lived in a waiting room. I'll close with this. The rest of the psalm gives a series of contrasts. It says the wicked do this, the righteous do this. Some of those, it says the wicked plot against the righteous, but the Lord laughs at them. In verse 14, it says the wicked draws weapons against the righteous, but they will fall by their own weapons. Verse 16, the wealth and power of the wicked will be taken away, but God will sustain the righteous. We live in a culture that seems to worship celebrities. Hollywood is full of beautiful people, entertainers, models, those who are wealthy or wield great influence. On August 16, 1977, Elvis Presley died. Here was a, a man who, who was 40 when he died, died at 42. He was born extremely poor in Mississippi. When he was 18 years old, he was making $14 a week as a truck driver. Then he became the highest paid male entertainer up to that point in the history of America. His funeral brought five tons of flowers, five tons. Some people drove all night to be there. Some took international flights from other countries and came to Memphis. One of his contemporaries was Pat Boone. And Pat said, ironically, we met for the last time when I was headed east and he was headed to Las Vegas. He said, hey, Pat, where are you headed? And I told him I was going here to a certain place and be involved in some type of ministry. And he said, I'm going to Vegas. Pat, as long as I've known you, you've always been going in the wrong direction. And Pat answered, well, Elvis, this just depends on where you're coming from and where you're going. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Trust in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Be still and wait patiently for him. Let's pray together. Father, we only have righteousness before you because of Christ. Thank you that he was our substitute, that through him we can be made right with you through trusting in what he did. And Father, we pray today that we might delight in you more. For those of us here today that without a doubt would say we trust in Christ, but we cannot relate to this thought of delighting, delighting in you, finding joy in you. We pray that that would change as we meditate on Christ's work, as we spend time with you, as we get to know you better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing